Hello and welcome to the Business of Property podcast. I'm Stuart. And I'm Simon. And we're both property people running our own businesses. And this podcast is just us chatting every week about the reality of anything and everything property. And with the fact that both Simon and myself are in the purchase cycles right now, and both pretty much at the beginning, we were just talking about the the hoops, the hurdles, the obstacles, the joy of purchasing. We thought it would be good to talk about those and just run through them for, for anyone that was interested in some of those key elements, because you sometimes forget just how much is in the purchasing cycle. Certainly I did. And given that Simon has, is, has gone the most standardized route, Simon, what was your first step? So we, we found the property, you've put an offer in, what, what then happened for you? Well, after the first offer came a refusal <laughs> and, and a counter offer or counter request. I'm not quite sure how that goes when it's coming from the other side. But anyway, uh, and my own refusal of that. So, so we went around this, I think in this particular case, it was only, only sort of one back and forth each way before they, they did then accept. So, so yeah, it was a little bit of negotiation, basically, and then an accepted offer. How about your recent process? Well, it's similar in the sense that we put offers out there. My purchase is direct with the owner. So the, the negotiation really was the price that they wanted less an agent fee. And that, that's kind of how I approached it because I liked the property it worked for me and I didn't want to have to negotiate down just because that's what we feel like we have to do. Once the owner had gone and made her peace with the agents because she felt kind of committed to them because they'd done, they'd given her advice and taken photos and talked about marketing, we agreed the price. So we agreed the price. So offer accepted. At that stage for me, to make it to formalize it, what I needed to do was make sure we got the memorandum of sale completed, and I just requested that my solicitor do that on our behalf, basically. Ah, okay. So for for me, of course, the the memorandum of sale was prepared by the the agent. However, I'm interested in some other steps that normally come around the beginning, but some, sometimes actually before the offer stage, depending on the the agent and the situation sometimes afterwards. And this is something that all agents have to or supposed to do, which is to perform anti-money laundering checks, AML checks on, on the buyer. And also normally at least to to request proof of funds to make sure that you, you can actually proceed with the, the purchase. Have you had to go through those those steps with a, a direct vendor or or have they just sort of skipped entirely for that situation? No, for us, for us, we've we've skipped it without jumping forward. What we need to do really is just to to demonstrate, well, proof of funds, stroke mortgage offer. That's that's where we need to get to. So the AML elements, although we have bought a few times via the same solicitors, so whether or not they're able to to use previous checks or not, I don't know to be honest. But yeah, we, we haven't had to go through that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So 
the, the question of who has to do these AML checks, ID checks, proof of funds, and agents are supposed to. I, I think solicitors probably are supposed to check this sort of thing as well. Although, uh, as you say, I've been using the same solicitor for so long that I I don't recall ever going through these checks, but perhaps I did once upon a time. <laughs> and of course, a, a mortgage broker stroke mortgage company application will probably require these these sorts of checks as well. So you might end up doing this this multiple times. And in in my case, I'm also setting up a new limited company and creating a, a bank account and things around that. So again, I've also had to do the same anti-money laundering checks and ID proof and proof of funds in order to to go through that and to get the bank account set up and things. So so there's quite a lot of hoops and things to to potentially go through right at the beginning before you really get started at all. But after, or, or maybe around that step, the, I think the next sort of significant milestone is, as you say, the, the mem- memorandum of sale. So this is a document that basically just says, you're planning to buy this property. And it normally includes seller's details, buyer's details, and respective solicitor details, as details being name, address, contact information. Have I missed anything from that, that Stuart? Uh, did you mention the price, the value of the property? No, I did not. That's quite a critical <laughs> point, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. Don't get me to produce your memorandum of sale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fairly key that you have the agreed price on there, on there just so everyone knows where, where, they, where they're coming from. Indeed, yes. So... So in my situation, that was prepared for me, thankfully, not, not left to me, clearly not up to that job. So it was prepared for me by the agent. And that gets sent out to all the relevant parties. So buyer, seller, and the solicitors. Now, at this point, obviously, there are solicitor details involved. So you have to have provided a solicitor or named a solicitor, which means at some point in advance of that, you're going to have to have talked to a solicitor and worked out who you're using perhaps agreed on a price and things like that. In my case, I've been using the same solicitor for a long time and and slightly cheekily, I actually gave their details to the, the agent before I'd spoken to the, to the solicitor to, to ask if this was okay. But thankfully, it, I checked straight afterwards and it was all fine. But those details then go out. Now, we're sort of comparing this to your, your direct vendor situation so you've got no agent to, to produce this so you said your your solicitor actually produced the memorandum of sale and then shared it with all parties yeah it's as simple as that yeah they just put all the required information on it and, and shared it with them cool nice and straightforward so what came next for you so after that for us was drawing up the keys undertaking document i don't want to to get distracted onto that but yes yeah, so perhaps, perhaps i should have said what what comes next in the standard process <laughs> yeah it, well, in a standard process, I mean, typically, from a buying perspective, we need to have our funds in place. So whether we've got the total funds to buy or a mortgage offer. I mean, w- one thing we, we didn't put down in our process, which probably comes pre-offer, is getting a decision in principle or an agreement in principle, which demonstrates to prospective vendors that you will be able to get the funding for the property that you're going to offer on. This, this is another interesting point. because, I, Along with being slack with my solicitor checks, I've also been slack with this step as well. So I've always 
spoken to a broker in advance and sort of discussed the the ideas. But I don't think I've ever actually gone into a an offer with an agreement in principle on a mortgage in place. I've always just gone in in, in the sort of expectation from knowledge and speaking to a broker and my own knowledge of, of how the calculations work and things that that there'll be a, a mortgage forthcoming so yes yeah, again don't don't necessarily follow my my path on this one do you always have a, an agreement in principle for a mortgage in advance or or, or do you also take a, a looser approach to that well i'm just reflecting on the last actual purchase that i made that was non-direct to vendor and it was it was a couple of years ago now so i haven't but I think more often than not, I will have. Obviously, when I'm investing in my own area, most of the agents know me now. And that doesn't mean I get to skip the administrative processes, but it does mean that there's probably more confidence that we're going to go through with it. The truth is, I haven't had to ask for one for a long time, but I do know in terms of the research and the work that we're doing in uh, in the Northwest area, you know, that is key at the moment is to have this AIP stroke DIP in place because they just won't even entertain a viewing now unless you have that stroke proof of funds. Yeah, through my limited company, that's been less and less important. But typically, I know that it is something that most agents want to see pre-viewing now. Yeah, from friends who have been looking for their own residential property locally, I've heard similar that they, they call up and say, we'd like to view property X, Y, Z. And, and the, the instant response from the agent is, that's lovely. Do you have a mortgage lined up? And if the answer is no, they say, well, no, very sorry, but go sort that out first and then, then come back and we'll show you some houses. But when I've contacted agents to, to arrange viewings, no one has ever asked me, do, do I have a, a mortgage in principle or anything? They've, they've sometimes asked me if I'd like to use their mortgage broker, <laughs> but, but they've never, never asked me for a, a, an agreement in principle. Yeah. So that is something to think about. And then so hopefully you'll already have that and therefore have your mortgage offer ready to go. Now, under mortgage offer, there's quite a few different elements which, you know, which we discuss in terms of, you know, there's a difference between residential and limited company. From your perspective, what have you needed to do for your purchase so far as regards mortgage offer? So thankfully, uh, I have a a mortgage broker who basically handles this for me. I do very little in terms of working out the the actual mortgage or what's available or the the nitty gritty of the process. So I send my mortgage broker the property details, the agreed price, obviously, and they come back to me and say, we recommend this, but you might also want to consider this and this as different sort of mortgage options and I, I i pick one and say yep this looks good please go ahead and then the paperwork starts <laughs> so this particular purchase i'm going through has worked slightly differently because i've also been doing a couple of remortgages in fact i started those remortgages just in advance of this purchase so a lot of the paperwork I've front-loaded and my mortgage broker has, has needed for the remortgages and can obviously just reuse. But yeah, I know from the past that, that the paperwork is often 
been a, a little bit later in the, the normal process. So there's lots of paperwork involved in a mortgage application. Do you want to, to kick us off with the, the first one on our list, Stuart? Yeah, sure. So we've got admin fee and valuation fees. So one of the banes of my life, and for further advances as well, a standard admin fee, a fee of 145, although I'm not sure who's doing the admin because it takes so long. Right now, I'm told it's six weeks for a certain bank to look at the forms that they request me to fill in. Six weeks before they even look at it, let alone process it. So you've got the admin fee. I typically pay around £145, but they're HMO products. And then, you know, your mortgage fee to the bank could be could be whatever number they like that particular day. Once those forms are filled in, and you know, it's important to remember that from my perspective, nothing happens until you've paid the bank, until they've got your forms and until you've paid them for the valuation fee and their admin fee, nothing is going to happen. For you know, this this is my experience typically. So for me, as much as I hate it, it's one of those processes that I just it's the first thing. If if there's a requirement for that, it's it's always priority number one. Because as soon as you've done that, they can instruct a surveyor to go around and value the property. And as we know, that is a an incredibly important part of the process, fundamental for your borrowing on the property. And yeah, so yeah, so for that that valuation is key. So once once we've once we filled out those forms, paid the fees, you know, we're, we're waiting for the valuation. In in the meantime, I don't know if you had anything further on that from your experience. Looking at standard buy to let mortgages, there tend to be fewer fees, I think. Although again, it depends on the mortgage product, so it's it's not one hundred percent. But quite often, the the fees are. Well, you tend not to pay for a valuation fee. Quite often that's sort of rolled in. And quite a lot of the fees that I've been been quoted and have paid <laughs> effectively on past mortgages get added to the mortgage. So so I don't have to actually pay anything up front, at least. I, I am in a slightly different situation now with a limited company purchase. And uh, there are some fees being involved there. So so that, that's different to, to my, my normal experience. But yeah, there's... There, there are fees somewhere, one way or another, either at the beginning or the end. They'll, they'll get the money somehow. And as well as the the actual sort of application form and the application process, they tend to need lots of other supporting documentation from us. And one of the well, one of the, the sort of key ones is a property schedule or a portfolio schedule. And this is a normally just a, a spreadsheet, but it could just be a, a list or whatever which includes information about all your existing properties. Now, of course, if you're early on in your property purchasing, you may not have any other properties. And this may may be an empty document or a a non-needed document. But for Stuart and I, I know we we both have to produce these documents. And for for me, this time around, I took advantage of a recently added feature to, to Patma. So all of my portfolio details are stored in Patma. And I can now just click a button and it will give me a spreadsheet with all of my portfolio details in. And, and this is sort of the property, so address, kind of property it is, so house, flat, terrace, whatever. Recent valuation, current mortgage, who the mortgage is with, what the mortgage payments are, 
um, or, or the, the rate of that, that mortgage, what the current rent is, and possibly some other bits I've forgotten. Have I forgotten anything in, in that spreadsheet, Stuart? Uh, no, I think, I mean, they're the key things. They typically also ask for the, yeah, the, the existing rates that you're paying. But to be honest with you, I've never updated those because I just think, how, how useful is that to anyone? But yeah, they, they, they're just after what you paid for it, current value that you believe it is, what, what's, what's currently incumbent on the property, what the existing mortgage is, is and what your, what your current monthly rent is typically. Yeah, I, I, think I, I think I remember to cover most of those at least. So yeah, so what, what are the documents they tend to ask for from you? Well, yeah, we've talked about this, the business plan. So particularly if you're buying in a limited company and whether or not it's related to HMI, I don't know. But for me, always been asked for a business plan for for what we're doing repeatedly. So and that typically is essentially what you are planning to do in the next 12 to 24 months. And for me, that hasn't changed. So what your sort of growth criteria is, I'm not entirely sure what the rationale is behind it to be honest I've, I've, I've often thought why did they ask me this I mean they do ask around what your future lending requirements might be but it, you know it's never you know it's never come back to me as okay well given your plans why don't we look at xy it's just a it it's one of the it's one of these pieces of documentation that I feel is to be created by someone for a very good reason but as it drops through the chain you just get given it as a as as this is what you have to do and and no one really knows why other than demonstrating that you are maybe a business so maybe it's just to support that you are thinking of this as a business that you've got a strategy you've got a plan and you've got a target but other than that i don't know so business plan yeah is something that we have to do a lot as well in my company you have other hmo specific paperwork that they tend to ask for as well don't you Yes, if it's further advanced, for example, or or a specific purchase now, they're getting very hot on HMO licenses, planning approvals, particularly relevant in Article 4 areas. And of course, don't forget, even if it's not related to HMO, if there has been any building works at the property, they'll want to see building regs or, as I've had to experience in the last year, an excruciating amount of certificate of lawfulness is that i have to pay for even on properties that that existing banks have lent on for five years they're now asking for these things when you think well you've lent on it for five years but anyway uh, so so anything like that that supports the property in the use that it is you know for example property i've got an hmo five bed has a kind of like a single sit single skin extension on the back double story where a new bathroom was put in, kitchens extended and so on. And they wanted to prove the use for that. I, I even contacted the previous owner who, who I bought off in 2015, and this is quite recent. And you can imagine he was quite surprised that I called him seven years later. And I just said, look, I'm just asking. I thought, because, because again, I had quite a few conversations with him pre-purchase. I said, look, just on the outside chance, have you got anything documentation? He's like, bloody hell, Stuart. He said, you know, he said that was done 20 years before I bought it, as in, you know, himself. So, you know, the works was 30, 40 years old, but the bank still wanted something. So I then had to go through council and get a certificate of lawfulness. So, yeah. Yes. Long, long lost paperwork there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
so 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 there's all of that and then limited company which you'll soon be buying through you also need your tax returns and in my experience they want to see you know at least the, the last year's full set of accounts sometimes they've asked for the last two full sets of accounts so they also need to be submitted to the bank so certainly in a limited company now there is a lot of documentation you know i can i can refer to even further advances now through a limited company you know the the amount of attachments i get are four or five of of forms to fill in and then respond with so so that and that's all just related to the mortgage element you know it's going to be half a day day's work just there yeah quite i mean you you mentioned company tax returns but buying in personal name or indeed mortgaging in a personal name should i say and I think also for, for your first limited company mortgage, I've had to provide personal tax returns for the last few years, or at least personal tax calculations for the last few years, so they can see income and where that's coming from and things. But they've also asked for bank statements as well, recent bank statements, not, not to show the proof of funds element, but to show income and to make sure that, that there is still, still money flowing through my bank accounts. And uh, I'm not about to to go bust or anything. So I think they are looking to to ensure that that there is income available from rent or from other other employment or business activities or whatever uh, as part of the process of providing a, a mortgage. I don't know how much of that is really going to be involved in my my limited company mortgage application because, as I said, I provided quite a lot of this as part of the remortgage application processes, which were in personal names. And then my mortgage broker is reusing the, the bits that he needs to, to do the limited company one. So I'm not too sure if uh, all of that's going to the limited company application. But I think that's probably it for, for the mortgage application side of things. So what's next in in the, the rest of the conveyancing process? Yeah, well, typically, I mean, it depends when it happens. I mean, I've got my solicitor asks me for a, a small fee for the searches on day one yep same here which is good because you know it means they're being proactive but so you've got all of the searches so the uh the world famous radon search what whatever they you know flood risk environmental you know all, all of the above yeah we could digress onto the fact that this doesn't change for centuries yet we we run it every time we buy a property but you've also got the fixtures and fitting report which, I mean, I've seen a few of those recently for properties that I'm looking at in auction, and they look just exactly how I fill them in, because I don't think anyone wants to fill these in, even though it's quite important when you're selling a, a property, given the values that are involved. Yeah, I can always sense that someone's just cross, you know, just ticking through it as quickly as possible, doing the bare minimum, non-applicable. Yeah, and I, and I don't know how many of us really look, although I, I have looked recently, because I was just quite interested to know if a property I was buying if they were going to keep the curtain poles and stuff like that, because I think it's only when you've been bitten by a couple of things that you suddenly realise, actually, these things are quite important to review, i.e., is there a TV area at the property? Is there, um, you know, are you leaving a washing machine? Because then if it says yes, then, you know, you've got recourse if if there isn't something there. And this this was quite an important element to me a little while ago, actually, with a property I bought where actually they'd, they'd left lots of, rubbish and stuff around the property and on the front lawn and you know within all of these you know you've got fishes and fittings and then there's another report which just lists 
what what they would be leaving in, in like washing machines, dryers, or yeah, you know, utilities, anything like that. Yeah, and there was a line in there that said, you know, it would be left, you know, enti- entirely free uh, of rubbish. So that gave me recourse to go back and say, well, okay, I've now got a quote to remove all of that rubbish, and it's going to cost two hundred and fifty pounds, and you've got the legal backing to do that. So as frustrating and annoying as I think these forms are to fill out, they they can actually prove really useful if for example you, you know you think there is a tv error at the property then there isn't but they've ticked a box and you say well actually I, I now have to to get that done but didn't believe that was something i had to do so shouldn't have been included in the price yeah exactly i mean i, I view the fixed fittings list as not super important in most cases but but yeah there, there are certain elements of it that you definitely need to to check and yeah the, the latest one that i've received was actually all electronic producer there's no no hand ticks anywhere you, you can't tell how how rushed they were when they filled it in it's all, all <laughs> just nice nice neatly printed ticks <laughs> but but yeah it's clearly just a, a a standard form thing that people have gone through and added one or two comments but otherwise just ticked yes it's there or no it's not there or included or not included should i say just skipping back very slightly to the to searches um to give some idea of, of cost i think my most recent ones were just under two hundred pounds. Does that that sound about about right for searches for you, Stuart? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I give the solicitor. I think they request something like one hundred twenty five, one hundred fifty pounds, but that's just to get them started. So yeah, so yeah, I think that's the right ballpark. Yeah, it's definitely definitely not going to be covering your solicitor's fees. This is just their covering their outlay for the actual searches, which obviously someone else performs, and they they have to request from councils and what have you. So. After you've got the, the fixed and fittings report, you'll, you'll probably also receive a title plan and title deed probably for, for you to have a read through. And of course, official title deeds will often include covenants. So they, they might be trying to restrict you from, I don't know, starting a business or building a shed or covenants can do all sorts of strange things. But it's important to, to obviously have a read through the, the, the title deed and to check that the title plan is as expected so they'll normally sort of outline your proposed property purchase in in some significant color so you can can see where it is and you need to make sure that it's actually the, the right property you're buying and and then you'll probably go quiet for a while while you wait for solicitors to exchange bits of paper and other things and wait for the council to do their searches and, and stuff like that and then after some some amount of time you'll receive uh, a big pack of of paper or electronic paper, depending on how your solicitor works, to to have a long read through. This will include your your search results. So, you, as you said, Stuart, the, the the radon search results and other buried treasures that that might be in in the ground and the surrounding area and and all sorts of things, air quality and there's loads of stuff that you get get in your your search results. And the the ubiquitous chancel repair fee that. That often appears, you know, that's related to to the, the village hall that existed in 1605, or, or or something like that. Yep, quite the the extra oddities and and little little bits that have strangely developed over time, and and no one's quite been able to to nullify or get rid of, even though it's completely pointless now. Yeah, and so you so along with all of that, you'll you'll get your your sales contract or a draft sales contract anyway as well, and. Typically, your, your solicitor will have asked some extra questions and got extra information from, from the sellers. 
and they'll send all of that to you. There'll be loads of stuff to read, and you have to take some time and, and look through that and make sure there's nothing too crazy in there, and it's all, all as you expected. And then, hopefully, you can start making things go forward. So what, what's the next step, Stuart? Well, assuming you're happy with the contract, you sign it. You know, I always think it's interesting when we hear about exchange when because you think there's there's something really complicated but it but it is quite simply you know the, the solicitors are exchanging the contracts you know they are they are swapping the contracts to say you have a signed contract and we've got a signed contract and of course once you've once you've signed the contract you are now legally obliged to progress or well, well, once you've ex- once the contracts have been exchanged, I should say, so you can sign the contract. But once those contracts are exchanged, as many of us know, that that means you are now basically legally bound. And uh, there there is an addendum to a story that we had a little while ago about someone's someone's chain that that broke down because the mortgage company had pulled out two days before completion. We'll we'll come back to that on another episode, and we'll we'll give an update on that because it's a it's a fairly uh, it's a fairly long update. But you know, it's one of these uh, situations where you know I've always been really scared. You know, once we exchange, to think, oh my god, we have to complete. Now, don't get me wrong, you have to. You know, if you've agreed these things, you're going to work to it. But I have been in situations where we haven't been able to complete on the the day that was given, and it worked out okay. I, to be fair, we were only 24 hours late and whisper it, but the solicitors backdated a couple of things. But typically, you know, you know, there's always a solution. And I've, I've always kind of felt that we're given this exchange and completion and, you know, the world won't change. And I think that's right, because given the vagaries of our conveyancing process, you want it to be there. But if there are problems, there are always, there are always solutions. But yeah, once 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 exchanged, you you really and you've signed the contracts. You, you're really thinking about the money <laughs> and uh, making sure the money's in the right place, and that uh, usually means being with the solicitor. Yeah, and of course, in order to exchange, you will have to have given your deposit already to to the solicitor, because at that point, at the point of exchange, that that money becomes the the sellers. And of course, if you if you did fail to complete, then then you lose that deposit. Um, and that, that's often 10% of the purchase price, but it's, it doesn't have to be. It can be much less than that or, or, or more, I mean, whatever you agree, really, between between buyer and seller and, and solicitors. But that, that money will typically, well, it'll definitely need to be paid to your solicitor in advance of contract exchange. And when contracts are exchanged, because you are now the legally responsible party for that property, you need to arrange insurance from that point. So buildings insurance, even though the seller might still be living there, you are actually responsible for that that property. And you, you have to then, as you say, legally complete on it. And of course, if something happens to that property from the, the point of exchange, it's actually you who would have to rebuild it potentially, because you still have to go through and complete on the on the purchase. So you need, you need buildings insurance from the point of exchange. So then after you've exchanged... Normally, a week, 10 days, two weeks, perhaps, but it, it can be any amount of time, really, but they're, they're sort of typical amounts of time, you will complete your purchase. There probably won't be any more paperwork to do between these, these two points. 
because you will have prepared it all in advance of the exchange. That's that's where all the paperwork has to be done for. But you will have to arrange some more money <laughs> between these two. The the actual arranging of that hopefully is done way in advance, but it has to actually move and become available to your solicitor in order to, to pay to your your seller. And some of that money will quite often come from a mortgage. So your solicitor will liaise with the bank and the, the, the mortgage provider in order to get a lot of those funds. But depending on the deposit you paid and how much and how much that was off the purchase price, you may well obviously have to send some extra money to your to your solicitor as well. Something to note is that banks, generally speaking, have transfer limits, especially if you're using online internet banking. So you, you might need to prepare a little in advance if you need to send larger amounts of money to your solicitor. You, you often can go into a bank branch if you need to send large amounts of money at very short notice. Go in with some ID and, and they'll probably be able to charge you a fee and sort out sending that money much faster. But otherwise, you can potentially send it in, in smaller chunks over a number of days to make that process a little bit easier. So, it's, um, it's one of those that I've been caught out on a couple of times. And it, it's a really important one, actually, because you, you can get caught out on it. I remember I bought a property at auction and I think uh, we needed to pay a significant deposit. It was quite, you know, close to 150K. And there was a certain date by which it had to be paid. Now, I think I, I think I went in early, but I can't remember what the limit was at the time because it was, it was a few years ago now. But it might have even been £40,000 limit, and I was just going to transfer it. And then I worked out the number of days. And I thought, well, that's not going to work because I've got to do it in three days, and I need four to transfer all the funds. But as you say, you know, when you can go into a bank, obviously <laughs> that opportunity is getting less and less to get into banks. Very but true. You, you can go in and, and you can obviously, and I forget which one it is, whether it's the chaps where you actually pay them, you know, £35, £25 to, to do that. But it's, it's definitely, definitely one to always be mindful of and, and plan for in advance because you don't want to get caught out. No, definitely not. Otherwise, the, the whole completion bit might, might fall down. Speaking of which, hopefully you've got your money in the right place. Your, your mortgage comes through. Your solicitor sorts out everything, and the solicitor the other side sorts out everything from their end, and you complete. And then hopefully the seller moves out. What's next? Is there another bit? Well, other than uh, other than actually moving, you need to get the keys, don't you? To uh, you need to go and get the keys to to be able to get into the house, and that's usually the well the nice bit of going to collect the keys because by that point you've had so much stress and tension just to get the keys and know you can move. But as we know, and we've shared on this podcast, it doesn't end there because sometimes you can get the keys, go to the house, and there might still be people moving out of that house. But typically, <laughs> once you've got the keys, <laughs> you are pretty much done. Indeed. And I think that's us done for today as well. Yes, so that does bring us to the end of this episode. We do hope you've enjoyed it. Please do feel free to reach out to us at biz, B-I-Z of property on Twitter or thebusinessofproperty.com and we'll see you on the next episode.